You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening and happy Monday to everyone. Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. I'm really glad you're here. And uh, I've been noticing uh, the there's an increasing number of conversations that people are having about LGBT issues. And I've also been noticing that there are a growing number of books and conference speakers talking about LGBT um, issues. And I also started noticing they don't all have the same approach. So I thought it might be helpful to do a teaching on giving you a survey of the landscape right now of the various approaches that are all flying under the banner of Christian approaches to homosexuality. And my hope is really to help you begin to make sense of it all and by looking at the different positions. Now, I'm not going to be giving an extended critique of the positions tonight, um, but rather just mostly providing what I hope will be a helpful survey of them. And I also want to invite you to add your voice to the conversation. Uh, You can engage with me in the chat box. I'm live. Uh, The easiest place to do that is on YouTube. Hey, Kathy and Jeff, glad to see you there. And glad to see Sting of Truth. First time I'm noticing that name. Hey, Tony. From Australia, glad to have you here as well. Let me know that you are watching. And uh, the I have a conversation partner tonight for the interview or for the teaching. And that part of the show will be pre-recorded and we'll be playing that back. But I will come back periodically live to address your questions in the chat. And uh, I'll be in the chat during the recording. So feel free to interact with me because I am live uh, tonight. So my conversation partner for tonight's teaching is Andrew Rodriguez from the Psycho Bible channel on YouTube. I recently began watching his content and I found his insights to be very interesting and helpful and kind of different because Andrew is a therapist and um, he's not just an author or a conference speaker. He's really been in the trenches with helping people in his therapy practice um, on issues related to unwanted same-sex attractions. So because a lot of the other voices in the field of uh, gay ministries and ex-gay ministries, a lot of those authors are conference speakers and, and that sort of thing, but not many of them are also therapists. And so that makes Andrew's voice a little bit unique. And he has been helping Christians uh, walk through these issues for over a decade. So I asked him to help me with this teaching and bringing his experience to bear as we do a survey of these four major views. So in the first half of the conversation here, we're going to look at the first two views. Then I'm going to come back and field your questions. So here's part one of our conversation. I want to say welcome to you, Andrew. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. 
I just want to give people a little snapshot, though, at the beginning about how you got interested in this topic of same-sex attraction, Christianity, therapy, and I'm, I'm sure it's a big topic and, and probably a whole show in and of itself, but maybe you could just give us a little snapshot of how you got into this. Raised as a Christian, you know, just uh, you know, very committed follower of Christ from a young age. And I guess it's as a Pentecostal, I just have a fundamental belief that people can be set free and healed. It's just, mm. that was never really an issue. Uh, so when I would hear about certain things, like say homosexuality, I'm like, well, God can, God can bring healing. God can bring change. That's, I mean, we believe in being born again, right? That we're new creations, so he can do anything. And, you know, we had some people in our, our denomination or in our uh, circles who we knew about, like, say, Dennis Jernigan, who had left homosexuality. And so I, I didn't really, it wasn't ever like a question of can God do anything in this area? And but it, so it was something I always had some thoughts about, but I, it wasn't really the area I was thinking I was going to work in. Uh, I'm actually more of a an artist. I never even thought I was going to go to college. My plan as a kid and teenager was to uh, become a comic book artist. But then I took a psychology course my sophomore year of high school, and then I was like, oh, cool, I can marry the two. I'll be an art therapist. Uh, but um, God kept bringing people in my life in my own family as well. My older brother came out of the closet my freshman year of college. And then I had a bunch of friends when I was at, in college at uh, University of Valley Forge, Back then, it was called Valley Forge Christian College. And there was struggling with same-sex attraction. And the school at the time didn't have any resources available on campus, no counseling services. And the way the, at the time, thank God things have changed, but the way the student life department sort of handled things back then was kind of don't ask, don't tell, because you might get punished, get kicked out of school if you got caught acting out in some way or watching porn. And there was no help for people. and so. Uh, what, one thing that was really powerful in my college experience was uh, I did my undergraduate internship at Day 7 Ministries in Lancaster, PA, and they were a Christian counseling center that specialized in all sorts of sexual issues, and they used to be a member ministry of Exodus International, and so I got to work with guys in the recovery groups there who were struggling with sexual addiction and guys struggling with same-sex attraction, and then when after that internship, I came back to campus and God clearly put in my heart, you're going to start up a group on campus for guys. And eventually what happened, I was able to start up a group that was marketed as a group for guys dealing with pains from the past. But every school year, half the guys were dealing with heterosexual sexual addiction and the other half were dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction. And I actually started that group after I already graduated, but my wife was still a student and I was living in the area still. And so I led that group for eight years. And at this point now, I'm, I'm running a private practice uh, in the town where I live. It's a private Christian practice. So I see a variety of, it, uh, of clients for a variety of issues. But I'm also doing consulting work with Joe Nicolosi Jr. being trained in reintegrative therapy, which is the current iteration of reparative therapy, which his dad founded. I've been watching some of your content, and I thought it's really helpful how you kind of lay out different approaches to the issue of same-sex attraction. And they all kind of fly under the banner of being Christian, but they don't, they're not all the same. And um, so I thought maybe we could walk through those because one of the things I like to do on this podcast is give people 
what I call um, mental hooks or ways of organizing their thoughts so that when they encounter an idea, they're equipped to be able to know like, oh, oh, how do I categorize this? How do I think about this? What are the big questions to ask? So maybe we could walk through that first and walk through kind of those four positions and then find out a little bit more uh, detail about about your particular approach and and what that's about. I think that would be great. I uh, made some graphics here to help people follow along. And I want to let everybody know I got these ideas and, and many of the much of the wording from Andrew's YouTube channel. So this isn't unique to me. This is things I've just adapted um, into the graphics, but much of the ideas comes from him. So he's going to walk us through these. Yeah. And actually, let me give a quick overview of this first, because I can't even take credit for this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I got this from when I was at the Restored Hope Network Conference in 2018. Gary Ingram was presenting this, this slide that showed this chart of four different columns. And it was actually developed by Jason Thompson from Portland Fellowship. They're, they're a ministry that's in Portland, Oregon. And so they sort of show that there's this breakdown of four, di four different views within the church. So you can say kind of broadly uh, within Christianity, uh, I would say the far left is the rebel side or the just the your typical pro-gay revisionist theology, pro-gay theology uh, position or perspective. And so the core belief here is like, as you have on the slide, God made me this way to enjoy partnership, particularly a gay partnership. And I would say that there's at least two streams within the rebel camp, mm. because it's, I mean, it pretty much parallels what you're seeing in, in the secular society, because traditionally uh, there, there's been the modernist liberal perspective on sexual ethics that is just live and let live. Uh, people are just born gay, therefore they cannot change. The, so it would be cruel to try to make them adhere to any sort of morality. Um, and so that would say that's probably majority. They're still in this view that God made them gay. They're born that way. And therefore, the prohibitions in scripture against homosexuality don't apply to them because scripture is actually talking about other types of homosexual behavior, like abusive or exploitive ones. There's a lot of your standard uh, pro-gay arguments. Right. But just as in the world, we're seeing this shift toward critical theory with, say, queer theory, I'm starting to see this happen in this camp as well. They at least have some, some standards, some guidelines where, well, homosexual promiscuity is still a sin, but being a monogamous, committed, faithful gay marriage is not. God has no problem with that. Right. Okay. But as more of this queer theory begins to infiltrate the movement, you'll even see a breakdown of any sort of norm so that it's just whatever. God is fine with whatever you do. So let's look at some of the details here of, and I think we have the, the next slide that Bob can dissolve on there. So when we think about identity issues, the idea of being gay compelled, in other words, God's made me this way. That's, that's what I'm assuming that means. Yeah. And uh, change is, is not possible, not desirable. So there's really a call to be open and affirming to everyone in this, in this stream. Um, yeah. 
so when they think about uh, the roots of same-sex attraction, I'm assuming that that's not part of the conversation. No, if anything, they'll they'll cling to the old paradigm of being born that way, so genetic arguments. But even in the secular psychology, the rest of the media and education system is slow to catch up to this. But even as early as about 2000, 2001, there were lesbian psychologists and researchers saying, look, that born gay idea is, is outdated. That's the old paradigm. We need to understand it more as any type of sexual orientation is a, a for question. Like, how does any of this d- develop? It's a mix of things. So, but th- if anything, when it comes to causation, they'll be more likely to lean toward, that's just the way God created me. Okay. And not only does he, did he create me that way, then obviously the next corollary to that is God wants me to be gay. That's truly the way that he's made me. Yeah. Now, when I think of the rebel perspective, I'm thinking of people like Matthew Vines and his new Reformation project would probably be some leading. Um, I think he tries to still fly under the banner of like as a progressive evangelical um, you know, maybe for people that aren't familiar with Vines and his point of view, maybe you could summarize that a little bit and how he fits into this stream. Yeah. Uh, yeah I remember when he first did his video, he was doing a presentation at a church, making his case. And uh, one of the guys in my support group that I was leading, he sent me the link and he's like, we need to really be concerned about this. And I remember at the time I was a bit dismissive. I'm like, oh, his argument has no validity and I, I, you know, I, I can topple it, but I guess I underestimated just <laughs> how, um, how unprepared the church really is for the arguments he was presenting. I, uh, I've seen that video. I watched that video. It had to have been 2014 or 2015. He's really young. He looks like he's about 19 there, 19 or 20. And he's doing a presentation and he's kind of, doing a lot of older arguments. I mean, there wasn't a lot that was novel or new in what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, Joe Dallas, when he, we had him on our podcast last March, he said those are the same arguments he was using in the 70s when he was a gay affirming pastor. But I think that Matthew Vine's youthful face, exposing it to a new generation, really had a lot of, it got a lot of traction. And he's now gone on to build an entire ministry around that message. Yeah. Plus it was just as social media was really taking off. I think what's unique about Vines is that he's really trying to create the idea that he's, he's creating a biblically faithful approach. That's what I was going to say next. Cause traditionally you could look at say the metropolitan community church and, or a lot of your mainline Protestant churches that would promote pro-gay theology. And you can look at them and be like, well, of course they do, because they already tend to have a liberal theology uh, in the theological sense and fairly low view of the authority of Scripture. But here Matthew Vines comes and says, no, I'm, I'm an evangelical. I'm like you guys. I, if the Bible says that this is wrong, then I will, I will not engage in it. And, I will, and he's trying to say that he's being led by Scripture. He's trying to win over Bible-believing Christians to be pro-gay based on scripture. He's trying to make mm-hmm. his argument purely from scripture. So he has a very systematic goal of 
full affirmation of homosexuality in Christianity. And his tactic has been, uh, it's been proven to work because what he does is he does these trainings, these little mini trainings, and he teaches people in his, in the theology that once again, yes, like Joe Dallas says, it's nothing new. He's recycling other people's uh, arguments that have been rebutted, but most people just haven't heard about them. Most people are, are just ignorant or uninformed about the arguments that the pro-gay side uses and what a biblical sexuality uh, uses as its defense and its foundation. He, pri he tries to present his approach as one that has been derived from scripture. Uh, there is a few things I picked up on though when I first watched it is he starts with the assumption that people are just born with their orientation, that it's something fundamental and it's what he is, not something he experiences. So he lays it out there without actually stating it, but that is the, the implied foundation of everything he says. Because then when he, say, he gets into, say, Romans, where it talks about um, uh, abandoning natural relationships or relations for the opposite sex for the same sex, it's like, well, then that's talking about a heterosexual person. So he's coming from this perspective that these are categories of what someone is. You're either straight or heterosexual, gay or homosexual or bi or, or whatever. Of course, for a heterosexual person to abandon natural relationships with a woman uh, or a guy, uh, a heterosexual guy to abandon natural relations with a woman and engage with a man, that would be wrong because it's not what he naturally is. So there's the assumption he has that you're naturally oriented one way or the other. Right. And much of his argument is predicated on that. So he doesn't see homosexuality as being morally wrong. If you are truly created that way, then yeah. you're just acting in the way that God made you. Because he's trying to promote that he is coming from a biblical approach. But the reality is he does still have a low view of scripture. Because he'll promote this idea that the biblical authors had no concept for sexual orientation as we understand it today. And therefore, it nullifies any prohibitions against gay people engaging in marriage together. Right. So there's the assumption that the authors, and therefore, by extension, God himself was ignorant about how we would view homosexuality in the 21st century. Okay, let's, let's move on to what you call, or what is being called the resist perspective. Yeah. And so maybe give us the big picture here on, on this one, and then we'll get into some of those details. Yeah. Um, other people might know this as the side B column. Okay. So, uh, within people, uh, within those in these two columns, the revel and the resist column, they sort of are their own like dual column in a way. They're two sides of the same coin uh, in that they both adopt a gay identity. And so the pro-gay side, the rebel side, they'll call themselves side A. And then the resist column will call themselves side B, or now they're using a term um, non-affirming SSA. So they're, what they call themselves may, may be either side B or non-affirming SSA. Uh, those in my camp, we, we might point that out as well, or we'll just say they're the resist column. Resist just simply means they accept that they have same-sex attraction, that it's they pretty much will agree with the world and even with most of the pro-gay side on the nature of homosexuality as far as how one uh, 
obtains or uh, develops same-sex attraction, but they'll at least acknowledge that the biblical sexual ethic is for one man and one woman together in marriage, and that that is the only sanctioned expression of one's sexuality, and therefore you either in, enter into a celibate gay life or uh, what they call a mixed orientation marriage. So those are only two valid options for people from within this column. So they sort of treat the same-sex attraction as it's just something that is. It's just, just the way you are, pretty much no different than your eye color or hair color. Um, I guess there may be those who view it as a, an affliction in some way so that it's, it's a struggle. But more and more I'm seeing it where they sort of view it as just something that is. But God's standard is still this. So, so it's like they, they will use the, the terminology of being a gay Christian, or I've even heard a few instances where people say like, I'm a gay pastor, you know, but what they mean by that is not that they're actively practicing that lifestyle. They're either engaging in celibacy or like you said, this new term that I'm hearing more and more of mixed orientation marriage. So I'm gay, but I'm choosing to obey the Lord and enter into a marriage relationship, but there's not really the pursuit of change and change isn't really even on the horizon. In fact, talking to people about change, I kind of get the feeling in some instances, they feel like that would be counterproductive or even painful to that person. Yeah. One of their big motivations is to ease the burden on people. You have to understand that God's design for our sexuality is be integrated. I mean, there's a harmony um, between our thoughts, our, which also includes your self-concept, your identity, your emotions, your feelings, your attractions, desires, and your behavior, your actions, and your relationships. And what you see it, as you go from left to right, as we work through these different columns, is to the far left, you have the greatest degree of disintegration or deconstruction of what God's design and intent is for our, our sexuality. So that none of, the, none of it really matches, or most of it doesn't match, because uh, at least they still believe in marriage in some way. So it's almost completely de de deconstructed and disintegrated in the rebel column. With the resist column, the only part of sexual integrity they're holding on to is the behavior, because they don't look at the feelings as much of an issue, and they don't look at the identity as an issue. So whatever the world says, whatever, just that's fine, but you have to adhere to these standards, these behavioral standards that we have as Christians. So it's like, all right, they'll start to acknowledge part of God's whole design for humanity and our sexuality. So to also try to encourage people to go through an inner healing process, that's too much of a burden. And also they will kind of scoff at it because they look at the, maybe the failures of the past in the ex-gay ministry movement, or, uh, or they conflate that with old medical models of changing homosexuality. And so they'll be, just assume that it's all dangerous. It's all 
abusive and uh, and they also as assume that any effort to try to modify your your thoughts and your feelings is being treated as a requirement for salvation itself. And so they just want, what's the bare minimum? Okay, uh, you believe in God, that's all you need. And then you just have an obligation to uh, surrender these desires uh, to him in just not acting out. So they, they still use often, like we said, the LGBT label, they'll call themselves a gay Christian. They still see their identity in Christ. They're, they're identifying as a Christian, but they kind of bring those, those two together and um, love the gay Christian as is. In other words, don't try to change them. Don't, don't try to engage in that conversation where we're leaving the burden, as you said, for them. So they do often affirm traditional biblical ethics. Mm -hmm. They're trying to live within those standards while living in the reality of, I know I'm born, I was born gay and this is kind of who I am. Um, yeah. So maybe talk to us a little bit about the major proponents of, of this view. Well, 2018, we saw the Revoice Conference uh, in, I think it was St. Louis yeah. at a Presbyterian church. And you saw like all of these Christians who identified or at least they promote this viewpoint. So they either identify as not just gay, but even they were promoting LGBT. So even the transgender, they've tried to backtrack and change some of their marketing but and branding, but they were presenting as there's something good in our sexuality, our sexual orientation. It just is, but we still are going to live in obedience to God's standard. The Revoice Conference, where you saw a lot of them come together and uh, teach their perspectives and there's even a degree of the critical theory here because the founder of Revoice is Nate Collins, and he's a graduate of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and his dissertation was about using critical theory in understanding sexuality. Yeah, I, I appreciate that they at least uh, honor the traditional sexual ethic, but the ethic is oftentimes divorced from the larger ethos. And not a holistic change. I want to let people know I have an extensive video on my channel about the Revoice Conference, and I've got screenshots and all kinds of documentation there from their, their statement of faith and their ethics statement. So if people want to do a deeper dive on Revoice, um, go check out my, my video on that. Maybe we could talk for a minute about a couple of other key voices in that stream is Preston Sprinkle and Wesley Hill, so I just did a video responding to Preston Sprinkle because um, I've been doing a couple of responses to Christian critics of ex-gay ministry or counseling for people with unwanted same-sex attraction as a, I was using the Netflix documentary Pray Away as a springboard for these commentaries. And so Preston Sprinkle and Tony Scarcelli did a video together commenting on Pray Away, but most of the videos been attacking uh, people in my column, which is the Rebuild column, who believe in change and healing. And um, so, but it's interesting, if you watch Preston Sprinkle's channel or you listen to his podcast, he'll interview quite a lot of people and even people who theologically I'm in line with. Uh, and 
a variety of people as well. Some other people like say Lisa Diamond, a lesbian psychologist. And he, so he, he's very approachable. I can say from his videos, he's, he's very likable. And he will, as far as I can tell, uphold the traditional sexual ethic. And he doesn't have SSA himself. He just sort of got into this uh, around 2012, 2013, and started, a, he wrote a book and he was interviewing people who were gay identified or were struggling with same-sex attraction. And so then he wrote a book, People to be Loved. So you can sort of get a sense there of the approach that he takes and a lot of them in this field take is one of, we just need to find a way that uh, is less burdensome to people with this, this orientation. He will pretty much agree with the world when it comes to the idea of sexual orientation and uh, even with the APA, whatever the APA says, he'll just sort of go with that. And then he'll pretty much scoff at anyone who believes that, that God can bring healing to the underlying issues that develop the same-sex attraction. So they're often very, very critical of those who are a little more further to the right on this, this chart. Preston Sprinkle has been platformed on many very conservative conferences, podcasts, People might not be aware of some of the nuances of these these different approaches. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this conversation, um, because he is a big supporter of the Revoice stream and sees himself as being in that stream. And yeah. I think it's important for people to be aware. And, you know, the purpose of this video is not to offer a detailed critique or anything. We're just trying to lay out the positions in a faithful way of saying like, this is sort of where this person's coming from and, and understanding that. Okay. We're back live. That's the first half of my conversation with Andrew Rodriguez. And I wanted to take a few moments to check out what's happening in the chat and also offer a little comment on something, but first let's look at the chat. Um, Yes, uh, Sting of Truth is asking, with the popularity of LGBTQ movement, what are some ways churches and Christians can engage and evangelize LGBT folks compassionately without compromising a biblical worldview? Yeah, that is a great question. And I think when we get to the second half of the interview, you're going to see some other types of voices. And I think that um, looking to some of those thought leaders uh, will be of some help along those lines is the resist stream of thought possibly related to the mind body dualism that Nancy Piercy speaks to. Yes. I would say that that's probably true. And, um, you know, I think that as we move through the views, when we get to the fourth one, it really is the closest alignment to, I think, if I understand correctly, kind of Nancy's vision of bringing both the body and the mind into alignment. So we will see that unfold as we uh, continue the conversation. But I think that for these first two positions, one of the things that um, sort of ties them together 
is if I were to boil it all down to, you know, just one key idea, I would say it's the it's the phrase sexual orientation as being fixed or inborn. That's really what these views have in common. Now, they they deal with that two different ways. One is, you know, to revel or just be completely affirming of that sexual orientation and this lean into that and celebrate that. And on the side B uh, version is just recognizing, well, I have this fixed inborn sexual orientation, but how do I live a celibate life or engage in a a mixed orientation marriage so that I uh, can live in a way that's biblically faithful, but there isn't an agenda to try to bring the mind and the body together into alignment or agreement. So the idea that sexual orientation is fixed or inborn is a critical question to ask when you are looking at these different approaches. And so if you hear a name, you know, that maybe we don't go over or you meet somebody who your church is thinking of platforming, you know, a really critical question to vet that person if you're in leadership or as an elder or something is, do you believe that sexual orientation is inborn? Is it fixed or is this something that's more fluid? So that is um, kind of one of the distinct distinguishing features of both of those approaches. Okay. Um, is there anything new on the chat or on Facebook? This episode is helpful and needed. Oh, thank you, Caleb. I appreciate it. All right. Hey, Grace. All right. Uh, anything on Facebook? No. Okay. All right. So before we get back into the teaching, I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that I am now taking speaking requests for spring 2022. Now it is starting to fill up, but there's still plenty of slots available. So if you want to get me out to talk to your women's conference, your women's retreat, or maybe you're an administrator at a Christian school and you want to know how to train your teachers about their students' worldview or Maybe you're looking to do an all-day workshop for your homeschool group or whatever creative idea you have for an event. Just go to the centerforbiblicalunity.com, uh, go on speaking, fill out the form, and get that process started. So don't delay um, because, like I said, uh, slots are filling up. Okay, let's watch the second half of my discussion with Christian therapist Andrew Rodriguez. All right, let's move on to what we're going to call the renounce view. Maybe you can kind of walk us through the big picture here on, on this particular viewpoint. Okay, so here's now with the, the two columns to the right, they're more of the conservative positions. And so the renounce view will be more where they're their emphasis is on repentance. And so earlier when I was saying there's the, your thoughts, there's your feelings, your, your behavior, the resist side will be, okay, behaviorally we'll, we'll surrender our behavior to God and his, and the sexual ethic of the historic Christian church. With the renounce calm, you'll see more alignment now with not just behavior, but also identity, where they will reject uh, having a gay identity. So why would I d identify with, with something that is ultimately sin for me to engage it? Well, to call myself a gay Christian would be to the, the equivalent of saying I'm a, 
maybe an adulterous Christian or a drug addict Christian, like a thief Christian. It just, we don't identify by our sin or our sin struggle or our temptation, which identify as, as Christians, as our identities are in Christ. So whereas the resist column sees no conflict in, in having an identity in Christ and an identity in your sexuality. So renounce would be, their, their emphasis is going to be on repentance, re, renouncing a gay identity and repenting of homosexual behavior. They too though will be more critical of say ex-gay ministries and, and approaches for helping people with the emotions, with the feelings. You'll, you'll notice with most of the proponents in this field, they're getting a lot of pro, uh, popularity in evangelicalism because a lot of them are in more Calvinist churches and they get promoted or platformed by say uh, the Gospel Coalition. And so some of the big names here would be like Rosaria Butterfield, Christopher Yuan, Sam Albury, even though he's not necessarily a Calvinist, but he do, he's done a lot of work with the Gospel Coalition and uh, I think Tim Keller and he developed a thing called a church audit where you can audit your church to see how welcoming it is for people of same-sex attraction or who are single. And there's some people that would criticize that and say that it's getting a little too much in the resist column as well. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry is another big name who for the most part would be in this column. Some people are arguing or the resist column is trying to claim her on their side as well. <laughs> so uh, there's, there's some blurred lines between these columns a bit. One thing that's really interesting to me about the renounced position is it's it's not that they're like a, so against the idea of change, which is more in the um, the resist view, but they don't talk a lot about change as being a goal. It's Correct. more of a you know big picture. Same-sex attraction is a result of the fall. And, you know, I'm going to live faithful, biblically faithful. Um, but there's not really an emphasis on exploring the roots or trying to understand what happened, if there, if there were any contributing factors mm -hmm. or looking for transformation. That's really not part of the conversation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like Christopher Yuan will say, there's one cause for homosexuality, original sin. And they, they'll be resist any sort of idea of there being developmental factors or uh, a variety of things, abuse, anything that we might say could contribute toward the homosexual uh, feelings and thoughts, uh, the disordered attractions and desires they just will attribute it to sin. And then this also comes down to one's view of concupiscence, uh, which the term, unfortunately, a lot of Protestants aren't very aware of. <laughs> but the idea of uh, uh, temptation and desire uh, is a desire to do something that would be a sin. Is the desire itself a sin? Resist side would say, no, it's not. Renounce side, for the most part, I think there's some variance here, but for the most part would say the desire itself is a sin. What they're going to offer as the solution to pretty much everything is repentance. So whether we're talking about the attractions 
or the behavior is repentance. That's the solution to everything. That's that's what we need to promote. And if the attractions change or not, isn't that important to them? Because especially since they're coming from a more Calvinist perspective, they're big on uh, seeing the value in suffering. And especially since they're scared of anything or they have a, an aversion, I would say at least, an aversion to anything that smells like prosperity gospel or the idea that you might be free of difficulty in life. So for them, the concern is when you're talking about more of a transformative goal, that for them sounds like prosperity gospel teaching. Yeah. Of... Resist side and renounce side will both make that criticism. Okay. Those who believe in transformation. Oh, that's prosperity gospel teaching. And it's a straw man, of course, what we actually believe. But yeah, because it seems like you're not preparing people to be willing to suffer for Christ. And so they want to give people the expectation that these attractions may never go away. You may have these rest of your life. If you're expecting them to change, you're going to be disappointed and disillusioned. And I, I see some wisdom in that because there are a lot of people who they come into, say, ex-gay ministries with even if the ministries themselves are not stating these are goals, they'll come in with their own unstated goals and they, or at least they treasure them in their heart. I'm going to, I'm going to go through this therapy process or this counseling and ministry process, and I'm going to come out categorically changed. And I'll be now only uh, attracted to the opposite sex. And that doesn't happen. It's, there's always a degree that you have to continue to uh, maintain whether growth you did achieve or uh, experience or that you may still have a, a degree of temptation to, to contend with for most of your life. Um, and so if we allow people to continue to have these uh, very lofty expectations of how much change to expect or experience or when, then they could become disillusioned. So I think the renounce column was responding to a bit of a uh, overstating the success in the ex-gay ministry movement and I think they might have overcorrected in some ways. So that that's they... super, that's super helpful. Um, and maybe that's a good segue into talking about the, the rebuild perspective, which is kind of what we've been alluding to all along, which I think you would put yourself more in the rebuild stream. So talk us through a little bit of that big picture where this view seems to me that it's approaching the question from a, a little bit more of a place of optimism of, yeah. you know, that change is possible. Tr transformation is desirable. Yeah. So before I was talking about the, your thoughts, feelings, actions, rebuild is all about rebuilding into uh, sexual integrity again, reintegration. Uh, so that all, th all those aspects of self, the, which basically those are the components of the soul, your thoughts, feelings, actions, that your soul would be reintegrated to what God's design is, what his intent is for you. And so we believe that part of the gospel isn't just forgiveness of our sins, but also healing and restoration back to God's original design. So that's a fundamental belief that we have. Now, we don't teach that it's just like a once and done thing, but that it is a process. So when it comes to what homosexuality is, we, we would agree with the renounced side that, that it is a sin, that it's rooted in sin, but also developmental wounds because we live in a fallen world and uh, we have uh, all sorts of influences in that world, whether we're talking about our parenting or our childhood experiences or the 
unhealthy, negative, uninformed, uneducated ways that we cope with difficulties, they have consequences. It would, it would be ignorant to say that your experiences don't have consequences. So why you may struggle with a particular sin usually has a cause. So we believe that if there's also a development to these things, then God has a solution to these things as well. He can bring healing to those underlying issues, and that can help aid in the process of sanctification and in uh, rebuilding sexual integrity. With that in mind, integrity, not just being about your behavior, but about wholeness, about a harmony, again, between your thoughts, feelings, attractions, and behavior and, and relationships. So in this situation, then we, they, these people see their identity in Christ and their hope is in a transforming work so that they truly become integrated. And that, I like the, the wording there of rebuilding, you know, re, rebuilding yeah. the ruins, if you will, that they can, they can experience the possibility of wholeness, sexual wholeness. And there is a, a place for exploring any potential contributing factors that um, were involved in the same sex attraction and that sort yeah. of thing. But there's, I think that um, our friend Joe Dallas would be in this stream, oh, definitely. Yeah. our friend, Ann Polk, the restored hope network, mm -hmm. um, Andy Comiskey, whose ministry I've followed for about, I don't know, 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. He's a real veteran in, yes. in this space. Um, so there's, this is part of, you know, just an approach of hopefulness, you know, for something. Now, that's not to say that everyone is going to arrive at that perfect wholeness or yeah. perfect integration. And maybe I, I like how you were alluding to earlier, like some ex-gay ministries, um, may have made mistakes early on of overselling, mm -hmm. um, the possibility of complete wholeness and maybe that's worth exploring a little bit more here yeah and the thing is i really don't know i, I i'm hypo, i'm hypothesizing that there's out some out there that were like that and i'm sure there were i mean if you look back at the history of exodus uh the height there's like 120 member ministries and i i know from other ex-game ministries that weren't part of exodus that they're there was some criticism about the way Exodus, some member ministries within Exodus would do things. And uh, you have to understand as well, the way that Exodus developed was very grassroots. And it came out of people who, during the 70s and 80s, were like, they're facing the AIDS crisis and they're seeing their friends die. And they were ready for a radical change. And they sought God out of desperation and God brought healing. And so they had such radical changes in their life that their stories, they might not have been telling everyone that they can experience everything the way that they experienced it, but just by them sharing their story could sort of put this idea in people's heads and their, their hearts that, okay, then that's what I should expect for myself, some radical transformation. And then when you got the world telling you this, this message that uh, your sexual identity is more constitutional, that's what you are, it can lead to people thinking that, oh, okay, so change means from going from gay to straight. When in reality, what we're teaching is that same-sex attraction is an experience, it's not your identity. And so it's not a matter of categorical change, but um, that change 
if it does occur, it's on a continuum. And sexual orientation is not just your, your attractions, but it's your, it's your attractions, it's your thoughts, your identity, your behaviors. So there's all these different dimensions of what uh, people would call sexual orientation. So change can occur in all of those dimensions and at varying levels with the main goal of living in adherence to one's values, which as a Christian would be with what God's design is and intent for your sexuality. So yeah, there may have been some overstating of, of success cases or change stories. And, but the reality is, I mean, I've read the books by, by Joe Dallas and uh, I just heard Cy Rogers speak and uh, heard a lot of the books by others in this field. For the most part, they're always very transparent about whether or not they still struggled with the same sex attraction or if it was a temptation at times. Normally what, what the experience is, is that they continue to grow and mature. The attractions are more like, like a little nuisance, like a little thought that pops up that they can easily dismiss. And for the most part, as long as they are maintaining, meeting their needs in healthy ways, the attractions have nothing to latch on to. I've, I haven't seen the straw man that everyone is putting out there. I haven't seen that, at least not among the major ministries and major names in this field. So I, I will acknowledge that it's possible. There were cases where they taught this uh, or they overstay their case, but I would say it's probably more among uh, people who weren't really in the fold as much. There, there's such a, a bad reputation I think that's it's attached to the rebuild stream of conversion therapy mm-hmm. and this term that is really uh, almost has a life of its own, you know, in terms of how it's defined and the public perception about it, that it's yeah. damaging, it's abusive. And it's very unfortunate that that is really what is what I hear lurking in the background of a lot of people that are in these other streams of, of ministry, a lot of the reasons they don't want to associate with the rebuild stream is because they don't want to be connected in any way to anything that has even the slightest bit of a connection to conversion therapy. And so maybe we need to talk about that kind of elephant in the room is, is that what we're talking about when we're looking at the rebuild perspective? Yeah, this term conversion therapy is really a misnomer for the work that we do in this column. It's, and I'll, I'll be one of the first to admit that there were proponents of our column that at one time would use the term conversion therapy because we didn't see it as an issue. It's just like, all right, fine. We want to call this conversion therapy, fine. Like there is some... Uh, couple studies uh, that Nicolosi was involved in that he just used the term conversion therapy to describe his work. And he might have had it on his website at a point. Uh, he would say, I do reparative therapy, also known as conversion therapy, just because he knew that's what people are going to look for to get them in the door. But uh, as time went on, we realized, wait, the pro-gay lobby is using conversion therapy as like a, a ruse term to straw man what we do. And it's like a, a way to say that what we're doing is, gosh, a few things. 
we don't, those of us in the rebuild column, we don't actually refer to ourselves, at least not anymore, not since, I don't know, 15 or so years as conversion therapists or providing conversion therapy because one, it gives this connotation of a categorical change. This idea of conversion, changing from one thing to another. It's also, um, they've, the, the media and the uh, anti-therapy lobby has done a very effective job with their propaganda of conflating any sort of therapy or ministry for same-sex attraction with old forms of uh, professional secular therapy for homosexuality that used to use aversive techniques, like say electroshock therapy or ice baths or uh, shaming techniques, uh, which is overstated actually, it's very much overstated. But you know, prior to the 70s or some point early in the 80s, because the homosexuality was in the DSM as a mental disorder, then whatever sort of therapy approach or uh, psychological intervention was in vogue at the time was being used to treat homosexuality. And the behavioral therapists would use, um, among other approaches, aversive techniques. So they will conflate that approach because it just seems like it's harmful. It must be harmful if they're using electroshock and, and ice baths and pricking someone with needles whenever they get aroused by same-sex uh, stimuli. So they'll just use that and they'll conflate it then. Well, this stuff still exists in the form of ex-gay ministries. You won't find an ex-gay ministry that has electroconvulsive therapy as one of their interventions. <laughs> and most of their, even... Uh, I'll also make a distinction here within the rebuild column. There's also kind of two streams because there will be those who believe that change is possible through through Jesus, uh, through um, deepening a relationship with Christ, and through the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And so they're just going to take a ministry approach. Then there are those who believe, well, change is possible also through like modern psychotherapy. And then there's me who thinks, hey, let's, let's use both. So uh, I, I love seeing Christian therapists uh, use the best of both. And so even those within the more therapeutic approach, like say Nicolosi, his approach was primarily based off of psychodynamic theory. And then he included more uh, trauma reprocessing approaches like EMDR. No behavioral interventions used. He's like the least behavioral or he was like the least behavioral of all the therapists. Uh, he just, let's, let's explore the emotions. Let's get into what, what's underlying the attractions and then work on repositing that and bringing healing to those underlying issues. So there's a lot of straw manning of what we actually do because they know that if we can tell people that conversion therapy equals torture and then pair that up with any sort of ministry approach or, or professional therapy for same-sex attraction, then that will be enough to get people to distance themselves. So now what you have our, is this division in the church where people won't touch the rebuild call with a 20-foot pole. And the funny thing is, this is why I often don't pay that much attention to people in the resist column and the renounce column, because the proponents of these fields are usually not actually 
counselors or ministers who are helping people in this area. They're usually just authors, theologians, speakers. Uh, they're, they're commentators. But they're, what we're doing in the rebuild columns, like we're actually getting in the dirt with people, getting in the trenches with them. And okay, I'm going to fight this fight with you and work through these issues and not just going to give you a pat answer like, all right, just be celibate, just resist. And like, maybe you are called to celibacy, but even if that is the case, don't you deserve to seek healing for any wounds in your life and see what God does there? So yeah. I think those are, I think those are really good points. And I think another component or rumor around conversion therapy is it's something done um, against someone's will, like you're oh, yeah, forcing yeah. them into it. So not only does it equal torture, you're doing it against their will. And that's doesn't sound like what you're up to in the rebuild stream. Everyone I've talked to um, in that stream has been like, you know, we want to help people who have unwanted same-sex attractions. They want to, an alternative to the paradigm of you just have to live with this and, you know, for the rest of your life, that they're wanting to pursue therapeutic options, prayer and ministry options, because it's something they don't want. Yeah. Is, is that what your experience has been as well? Yeah, I mean, the pro-gay lobby has done such an effective job at making it sound like anyone in my, my field is uh, harmful that they refer to us as perpetrators of conversion therapy and that anyone who comes to us is undergoing conversion therapy or they're, they're being inflicted with conversion therapy as if they're a passive participant and, um, and we're doing something just by default, we know it's harmful. So it's, it's ridiculous. It makes me laugh. When it, it just, if you use the term conversion therapy unironically, it just, it's a sign right away that you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, when I was in grad school, one of my early assignments was to write a little essay for my theories of counseling class. And the question was, what type of clients do you not want to work with? And for me, the, the answer was simple. I, I don't want to work with anyone who doesn't want help. And it's just been the case. Like when I ran my support group at my old college, no one was in there that I had to convince that homosexuality was wrong and something worthy of repenting of or trying to work through. Like they came in already with their minds made up that this is an issue in their life they want to work through. And it's not compatible with who they are as believers or just who they are as men. Uh, there was a time people understood what it means to be male and female and what, what was in accord with that. And so they came in with their own goals. I'm honoring their goals insofar as they're, their values also align with mine, because I believe as a Christian therapist in being values disclosive, there's a myth in the psychology world that you can be value neutral, but uh, it's, it's, it's an utter myth because your values as a therapist are going to steer what you consider important and how you steer the conversations in the therapy sessions. So I've only worked with people who ever wanted help. And if I ever get someone, they, like an adolescent or even an adult who I get the sense has some ambivalence about working on this issue, I'm not doing a whole lot of interventions with that person. I'm, I'm going to be really checking their resolve and really exploring, why do you want to work on this? All right, why not? And I'll straight up ask them, like, 
why not just be gay? Why not just go and jump into it? And if I get some answers where I'm like, okay, there's some shame-based reasons for here, for, for being in here. Like, oh, I just, I have to stop this. I have to stop because I don't want to go to hell. Uh, that tells me like, okay, they've internalized a, most likely a very legalistic theology. And they're thinking they, if they can just change the attractions, then they, their temptation will be gone and they'll never have to worry about committing this, this terrible sin. And they'll get the acceptance from their parents, acceptance from the church community, and they don't have to fear going to hell. And like, that's, this is a deeper issue than just having same-sex attraction. I'm going to have to work on just their security of their salvation and just building up uh, their uh, their worth. And because the, the irony is people will say that what we do is shame people, but we understand that shame is actually at the root to the same-sex attraction. The most of the work we're doing is to resolve shame and help people take hold of who they really are and find their true identities and stand firm in that. So I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of work with someone if I sense that they're in it for a reason based on shame. I'm going to help try to resolve that more and more. So that's, that's what the therapy is anyway. I really appreciate you kind of giving us that detailed answer and, and giving us a snapshot into how you do things. I think we could probably do another whole podcast just on, on your model and, and uh, how you work with people. It's super fascinating. Thank you for the work that you're doing. You're in the trenches with people who are in the struggle and thank you for helping to orient us um, on these issues. We really appreciate it. Okay. I'm back live and I want to thank again, my conversation partner, Andrew Rodriguez, go check out his uh, YouTube channel, uh, Psycho Bible, and where he babbles about psychology and theology. And uh, I think you might find his content interesting. He ha does have a couple strikes on him on YouTube, so he's not sure how long that relationship will last. But you can go subscribe to his channel if this uh, topic interests you. And once again, I think it's really important to um, make very clear that these aren't, these categories, these four views aren't hard and fast delineations. We're just truly trying to help frame up the conversation, the major positions. There might be some level of discussion when you get down to the individual person, the individual voice on how to categorize certain thought leaders. But hopefully we gave you some critical questions to think about and consider and ask, um, you know, two of them off the top of my head. Uh, is asking the question, what does this person see as being the root causes of homosexuality? Is it inborn? Is it a fixed orientation? Or is it a result of the fall? Is it, um, you know, possibly um, looking at even if you're on the rebuilt side, looking at root causes um, beyond just the fall, but also looking at um, potentially life situations, abuse, uh, and, and uh, that sort of thing, family dynamics. That's not always the case, but, you know, is there room for at least exploring possible root causes? Um, and a second great question to ask is, uh, you know, what does this person see as the role of transformation and rebuilding? Is there any room for that? Or is that just off the table entirely? So, Hopefully you have found this discussion helpful. I'm going to go out to the chat box 
one more time. Some of you had some great questions that I want to work in toward uh, the end here. Can you scroll down a little bit? There was some that were up. Keep going down, down, down. Um, okay, let's go down one more. All right, I'm going to go back to Sting of Truth's question here about resources uh, to help engage and evangelize LGBT people compassionately without compromising the biblical worldview. I'd refer you to people in that rebuild column first, people like Joe Dallas, the Restored Hope Network, uh, and Ann Polk. We've had her on our podcast before. She spearheads that. And, and what the Restored Hope Network is, is a sort of a consortium of ministries um, that are like-minded and are in that rebuild position. So those would be a couple of them to take a look at. Another one that I follow is, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, Linda Seiler and uh, her ministry. She would also be in that rebuild column. That's Andrew's position as well. So all of them will give you some helpful resources along those lines. All right, let's go back out to the chat for a minute. Um, all right, scroll down. Um, let's see, keep going. Yes, uh, Grace, just to be clear, the rebuild is not what our secular culture calls conversion therapy. You know, conversion therapy, as Andrew said, is sort of this catch-all phrase that the culture wants to wrap up uh, the rebuild stream in that, which it really tries to equate it with torture and things done against people's will but that is not what the rebuild column is about. So just trying to uh, carefully differentiate that. I thought that Andrew's answer to that was very thoughtful and uh, complete. So, all right, let's go out one more time. Um, Allison, is it wrong or bad to be celibate? Uh, maybe it's assuming avoidance of examining deeper wounds. Yeah, Allison, if you join the stream a little bit late, um, what we said earlier, you could go back and catch it. But in one of the previous views, it's like celibacy is pretty much the only way, one of the, the only ways to cope with um, homosexuality. And that's what Andrew was kind of responding to is like, hey, if God calls you to celibacy, that's great. No problem. But if you want to pursue healing and integration, shouldn't you have the ability to, to do that? So that's kind of Andrew's point. Okay. Huh? Oh, Psycho Bible. Thank you. All right, Andrew. It's great to have you on the show. You're a great resource. So maybe I'd love to have you back sometime and talk about some more topics. Uh, you really brought some good wisdom. Okay. Uh, I don't, I didn't really see anything. Um, so is the main difference between the last two categories, the use of therapy Somewhat. I mean, it's mostly from what I understand, kind of the the, the main difference is what, whether or not there's just the broad route to what is the cause of homosexuality answer. It's the fall. And, and that's pretty much like just the only answer in the rebuild column. It's the fall. Plus, there could be some openness to exploring family dynamics, tr 
uh, childhood traumas uh, and that sort of thing? And is there a possibility of um, working on those traumas and and getting to wholeness and more of a transformational model? So that's what I see as being the primary difference between the two. But um, both of them clearly are looking at their identity in Christ as being very, very important and, um, and holding to traditional ethics and that sort of a thing. Okay. Anything else on? Great. Glad you enjoyed the interview and all right. Yeah. Restored Hope Network. Yes. Hey, Michael. Okay. Thank you everyone. Before we wrap up tonight, I just want to let you know one more time and let give a quick word about my online class, how to really interpret the Bible. It's a 13 week class. It's a self-paced course where I teach you the nuts and bolts of how to properly interpret the Bible. It's really an amazing class. Uh, So many of the students report just what a life-changing experience it is. You can go read their testimonials there. You'll be able to access all of the lectures and, um, practice assignments. You'll be able to do it on your own pace. So if you want to know more information or how to register, just go to theologymom.com slash classes and click on how to really interpret the Bible. Okay. I'm going to put a bookmark right there for now. Monique and I will be traveling for the next couple of weeks. I'm really aiming to try to get in a teaching or two before the end of the year about the end of the world. (laughs) Uh, I've been working on it. I've started on it. And I think it's a timely topic that many people are wondering about. Um, So that's the goal. But we will see how that goes. It might end up having to wait until January. But I do want to let you know, I also have an exciting Christmas theme podcast set up. I just set it up today with my friend Ken Samples. I know you're going to love it and you're going to want to share it with your friends and family. You're going to find it just so helpful and amazing. So that's some things to look forward to on the Theology Mom podcast as we close out the year. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who have stepped up to be monthly partners so that I can do this more regularly. What an amazing thing it is that I get to do this now full time and create content for all of you and be able to develop new classes and new podcasts in a timely way. I just want to say thank you all for your support. And uh, if you would like to become a monthly supporter or make a one-time donation, all you have to do is go to the center for biblical unity.com slash donate, and you can select my salary and help to support me and my family and Bob the Button Pusher so that we can continue to bring you these amazing resources. Thank you so much for watching. Share the show and send me your feedback on what you found helpful about our conversation with Andrew tonight. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.